Amen to that. Well, the beautiful thing about what happens when we sing together is we are singing and praising God for what he's done, but we are also singing to each other. We are bearing witness and giving our amen that what we know has happened for us in Christ is in fact true. So we just got to hear the gospel preached to you by a hundred voices. It's a beautiful thing. Go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, you can open up your Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. We are in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to orient you guys real quick as we jump back into where we are. It's a long section of Scripture, and we can kind of lose the forest for the trees as we kind of go through it bit by bit. So this sermon is King Jesus proclaiming his kingdom. That's what it is. And what he's done so far is in the Beatitudes, he kicked it off by describing what the citizens of the kingdom look like. The people that he calls into this kingdom, who does he make them into? All right, that was the Beatitudes. And then he went from there and he described how the citizens, those outside of this kingdom, the citizens of this world, how they'll respond and react to the citizens of this kingdom. And then how the citizens of the kingdom are to be towards the world, which he described as salt and light. Well, that's where we've been. And now Jesus is moving into a bit of a different section as he gets into verse 17 here. He's going to begin talking about the law. The law. Now, the law, law is very closely tied up with kingship and kingdom, right? Like nations are, in a lot of ways, kind of defined by their laws. That defines the character and the nature of a kingdom or a nation. And this kingdom is no different. In fact, if we go back to the Old Testament, God gave Moses some instructions for the day when Israel would have a king. And they are completely interwound with the law. The king and the law are bound together. We read this in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, talking about this king, that will be, he shall write for himself a book, uh, in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. So the king's supposed to write out what they have of the Bible so far, his own copy for himself. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. All of those instructions surround the king's relationship to the law. God's law, what he commands. He is supposed to know it deeply. He is supposed to uphold it in his kingdom. He is supposed to love it and follow it as an example for the people. The rest of this chapter in Matthew 5 is about the law. And it's about Jesus' relationship to the law. And this has profound meaning and importance for us. The way Jesus describes and talks about the law, the way the king executes the law, means everything for the citizens of the kingdom. And so let's go ahead and read how he starts out here in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, 
and not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you again for speaking to us, for revealing yourself to us through your word. Uh, And we ask for your help now as we sit under it. We pray that you would uh, make it powerful through the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would make it living and active, that it would not return void as you promise. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed and comfort where comfort is needed and that we would see Christ more clearly for the time we've spent. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so this is a passage of scripture that does not bury the lead. Jesus is not kind of doing a slow build to what he's trying to say here. The very first verse, the very first sentence, he gets right to the core, right to the main point of what he's saying. When he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To be honest with you, that is the sermon. That, that's, that's it. That's the whole thing right there in a nutshell. But we're going to take the scenic route, right, and delve into it so we can appreciate the weight and the beauty of what Jesus is declaring. Because although he may state it tightly in this one sentence, in this one verse, the implications of this statement by Jesus are massive. They are at the very core of what it means to be a Christian and to be a part of the kingdom of, God, of heaven. So Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Now, if you are going to say, don't think something, why would you say that? Generally, because somebody's thinking it, right? If I go around saying, you know, don't think I'm this, don't think I'm that, I sound like a paranoid person, unless it's actually going on, right? So this is something that was out there. As Jesus' ministry has grown, there's become this idea about him and who he is that he has come to kind of get rid of what we had in the Old Testament, to get rid of the law and the prophets, get rid of God's law, and and to do something different, completely different. And this most likely found its source in the folks mentioned at the end of the passage. They're kind of in view throughout this whole time the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They're Israel's religious leaders. And they've been watching him. They've been watching what's going on. And they are not big fans of Jesus. We'll see more of this as we go on further in Matthew. We haven't seen it a lot directly yet. But it's going to become very, very obvious. Later on in Matthew 11, 19, Jesus is going to say this about kind of his reputation or what was being spread about him. He said, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There was something about the way that Jesus was in the world here that allowed what he was doing to kind of be twisted and shaped a certain way. It's largely that Jesus hung out and he associated with the lower rungs of society, both on the social ladder and also on the moral ladder. Those two things were very closely tied together in culture. And this is probably most clearly seen at his baptism. 
right? John is baptizing people for, for repentance. And when we, if we were look to look back there, the Pharisees come to see what's going on, but they don't get baptized. Right? All the sinners are coming and getting baptized. They've got sin. They need to be washed. They are standing back just kind of watching this phenomenon, trying to make sense of this John guy and sort it all out. Well, what does Jesus do? Jesus gets in the water with the sinners, right? And that's a great picture of kind of what the Pharisees see in Jesus. They see this guy who is willing, who goes and gets dirty. And to them, that is not a good thing, right? This is somebody who they see it as, as compromise. And now they spin it, whether it's misunderstanding or whether it's intentionally trying to discredit Jesus, is the fact that Jesus, by associating with sinners, approves of sin. Those are not the same thing. Those are not the same thing. But that is how it was being portrayed. Hence, Jesus need to say this. All right? They're saying, hey, this guy, he, look at who he hangs out with. Look at what he does. He doesn't care about the law. He doesn't care about what God says. It's not like us. That is, that's kind of the background of what's going on here and what Jesus is answering. And in reality, if you think about what we read in Deuteronomy about the, the king of Israel, this gets a little bit deeper. He's not just some lawless person. This kind of really calls into question his kingship. He's running around proclaiming the kingdom, claiming to be a king. And they're saying, hey, this guy has none of the characteristics of the king that we were instructed to find. So this is a very, this cuts right at the very core of who Jesus is and what he comes into the world to do. And to be honest, this way of framing Jesus, right, that, that there's all this law and these rules in the Old Testament, but Jesus, he doesn't care about all that stuff anymore. The Pharisees played it as a negative thing in their culture, but nowadays something similar is played up as a positive thing, right? Sometimes you hear this, this sharp dichotomy held out where there's the God of the Old Testament, and he's mean, and he's harsh, and he's holy, and, you know, has all these, he's strict, but then Jesus comes along and He's much more like a hippie, right? He's just love and peace and joy and, you know, it's, it's all good everywhere. And he kind of pit, pits Jesus against God. And that is just completely not true and false. Jesus is God. He is the God of the Old Testament. Those rules and laws are his rules and laws. Right? There's not some good cop, bad cop act going on in Scripture, Right? You got the bad cop, the whole Old Testament, and then, okay, now Jesus comes in with a cigarette and a, gla and a Coke, and it's like, okay, let's, let's, you know, let's now be reasonable. That's not what's happening. The Trinity is completely united. There's no, you can't split them apart in any way. He is God, and God's law is the perfect expression of God's character. Not only does Jesus not abolish the law, he can't abolish the law because he can, accords with it perfectly. It's just an outflow of who he is. So that does not work. The question here is kind of framed. The question is, okay, so who does take the law seriously? The Pharisees and the scribes sure look like they do. And maybe if you're looking at the surface, maybe, maybe they look like the most serious. Right? Maybe Jesus looks a little less serious about it because of who he hangs out with, all this sort of thing. 
But Jesus is about to completely turn the criticism on its head. Not just a little bit, and not gently. He is coming in hard. He's going to completely turn the tables here. He's going to show that he's not the one who's made of the law. He's not the one who's made a light of the law. It's actually his accusers. Those who are saying, oh, we're the serious ones. You've abolished this. He's like, no, (laughs) it's the other way around. I uphold God's law perfectly. You guys are the ones who've lightened it. You guys are the ones who have, in essence, abolished it. And he's going to demonstrate this contrast through a series of statements. First, he says that not one little bit of God's law is ever going to pass away till, till the world ends. And he says, one iota or one jot, those are kind of the smallest markings in Hebrew, a way of describing those, right? And so he's saying, hey, not, no bit of this, none of this goes away until the world ends. You know, they say nothing in life is certain but death and taxes. Well, Jesus says, you need to throw one more thing in there, right? You need to throw the law of God. It doesn't move. It does not change. What God determines is right and wrong will continue to be right and wrong as long as the world continues. No matter how much culture moves, no matter how much times change, no matter what technological innovations there are, no matter what we learn about the world, these things are fixed and set. Of course, this is not how we treat them often. especially broadly speaking in our culture. One of the ways that we respond to the law of God is by relativizing it, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is talking about here. We move it and shift it and change it to fit other things. Rather than treating it as the immovable object that everything else has to orbit around, we squish it and smash it and distort it to fit other things. Right? Our world likes to pick and choose. They love to say, oh, don't judge. That's a good one. Let's keep that, right? But then if we get to some of the stuff later in Matthew 5, uh, don't lust, that's a sin. Any lustful thought is sin. Oh, well, okay, well, that seems a little, that seems a little much. Let's get rid of that one, right? So you just kind of pick and choose. You, know, you pick the ones you like, you get rid of the ones you don't. You shape God's law through the lens of whatever desires and impulses you have and what you feel like you can live up to. Just kind of customize it into this nice little box. Right? And this obviously shows up in the world at large, right? We think about, um, you know, progressive Christianity or, or progressive things that just outright reject very clear things from Scripture. But there are other um, subtle ways that this shows up too, right? It's not just in those obvious ones. We all have this impulse. Since the Garden of Eden, this is what Adam and Eve wanted to do. They wanted to be like God. To be like God means you get to change the laws. That's what they were trying to do. And we have been doing it ever since. So the same error can happen in conservative circles. Circles that say that, you know, the Bible is God's word. And who say the things I just said. Who openly acknowledge this. We can still do this. We still live in the flesh. We still have desires and impulses that are going to color the way we interact with God's law. And the interesting thing is that the people that Jesus is addressing here right now are not the progressive liberals in Israel. If the Pharisees, if, if you're going to kind of use that paradigm, the Pharisees are the conservatives. 
right? They're the conservatives. They're the ones who are trying to stay close to the box generally if we were going to apply those categories. Those are the ones he's talking to. This is not a left-right thing. This is a human nature sin thing that we all do in our own ways. Right? And then as he continues, he kind of draws out how this happens. In verse 19, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is here kind of almost directly referring to something that the Pharisees would do. They weighted the law. They would talk about weightier commands and lighter commands. Right? So that way, like if, even if you couldn't do all of it, at least make sure you do the big ones. It was that kind of an idea. Right? But where does God give us permission to do that? Where does God give us permission to lighten something that he has set? Nowhere. Nowhere. But we have been doing this forever, right? We've been looking at God's law and deciding that we get to decide what is important and what's serious and what isn't. And it generally tends to look very much like us. We tend to think the things that we're good at are, you know, that's the important stuff, right? I'm good at not murdering people. That's That's a big one. Right? Coveting, not so, not so great at that. That's, you know, a minor one. Everyone does it. But we do this kind of thing all the time. And Jesus is saying, we, you don't get to do this. That is distorting God's law. You're taking what he has given and you are making it into something else. You are fashioning it in your own image. He doesn't say, well, break the speed limit if you must. Just, you know, just don't murder anyone. It's not how he works. He is holy and his law is absolute. We don't get to twist it to make it fit us. God does not make laws that are unimportant, that don't matter. If he says something is not good for us and we should not do it, it is because it is not good for us and we are not allowed to do it. Period. Like, stop. That's, that's it. Every single one he gives us is vital. When we start adding our own waiting system to it, we will get it wrong. And we put ourselves in place of God. So church, we have to beware of our hobby horses, right? The things we really like to camp out on. Right? And on the things that we like to ignore and kind of decide are not important that we don't need to think about. Let's think about, it's interesting, you know, how many... How many times have you heard drunkenness preached against versus how many times you've heard gluttony preached against? They're like the same ballpark of thing, right? But the one has been treated a very particular way and the other one's been barely even noticed or mentioned. That's just one example. This happens in all sorts of ways. We do not get to devalue what God commands because of how important it seems to us because of how well it fits with what we want or like or how good we are at something. When we do that, what we end up doing is we end up creating an inflated sense of our own righteousness because we are going to adjust those weights and measures. We're going to show partiality to ourselves. Right? We can't help but do that. Like That's just what is going to happen when we start messing with this. So we are going to end up with an inflated sense of our own righteousness and an overly pejorative view 
of everyone else. And nothing good comes of that. Nothing good comes of that. It promotes our independence. It de-emphasizes our, our need for Christ. It lowers our view of the neighbors that we are supposed to be loving. It heightens and makes our worldview even more self-centric than it is by nature. None of those things are things we need. They're all horrible and horribly detrimental. Jesus is later on going to call the Pharisees and scribes out on this, doing this exact thing. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law. He's using their own categories here, right? To throw them back in their face, essentially. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So you say, look, not only did you weight these things the way you shouldn't, you did it all wrong, right? If you were going to weight them, you didn't weight them the way that God does, right? I didn't need your mint. I'd rather you take care of your neighbor. More important, right? But they did the opposite. And they are not different than us, right? We've got to be careful with this because it's very easy to kind of keep them at arm's length and be like, oh, yeah, those Pharisees, man. Shame on them. Don't do that. Right? We do the same things. When, uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, one of the things we would do is we'd train with other militaries, and we, you know, one of the things we train would be shooting. And um, one particular time we were doing this, uh, the folks we were training were kind of a mess. Did not go well the first day. It was very... Shots were all over the place. But then we came out the next day, and something had changed. Uh, it wasn't the shots getting better, but the targets looked completely different. The black part in the middle you're supposed to hit had changed shape and size significantly to where a lot more of the scattered shots yesterday were suddenly now in the black. Right? We can't do that. It doesn't work. Right? You're not better just because you changed where the color is. And that's what, exactly what we do when we relativize God's law, when we reshape it and change it to fit us and what we do and what we're good at. We cannot allow ourselves to become the arbiters of God's law. We want the rules to be what we want them to be. We think we know best, but we do not. We do not. We need to humbly submit to what God has said. Let's move on to the last verse here. And then we're going to circle back up to the top because we haven't even talked about the most important thing. This last verse is huge. Um, this really, Jesus has kind of been building towards this, but this is where he really drops the hammer. The last verse says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if you're to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let's think about that for a minute. Now, I think I can answer this, right? But when you think of the scribes and Pharisees, do you think good guy or bad guy? You can talk. Bad guy, right? We know how this story plays out. They're some of Jesus' worst enemies. They're a large part of the reason he ends up getting crucified from a human perspective, right? We know they're the bad guys for being very simplistic. We know that their righteousness is a show and a sham, right? That we see that played out because we have 
the whole story. But we need to hear this the way that Jesus' audience heard it. Right? We need to hear this the way Jesus' audience heard this. How did the people Jesus is talking to, how did they see the scribes and the Pharisees? Not like us. In fact, the polar opposite of the way that we do. The, the, these were guys who studied and taught God's law all the time. Their entire life was shaped around knowing, understanding, teaching, living God's law. It sounds a little silly, almost, but they were pro- professional righteous people, right? Like this was, this was their job. Their job was to be righteous, to do exactly what we're talking about. They were the ones who were seen to set the bar for everyone in terms of what it looks like to keep God's law. The scribes spent their whole days copying out God's word. Nobody knew it like they did and interpreting it, right? And then the Pharisees, they studied it. They taught it to the people. And they were the models of what it looks like. So that's what Jesus' audience thinks about when they hear scribes and Pharisees. If you say righteous, this is immediately who comes to their mind. So knowing that, this verse sounds very, very different. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. On the one hand, this is definitely a little bit of a shot at the Pharisees and the scribes. This is meant to jar them a little bit because they see themselves as righteous. They see themselves as the ones who do this. They see themselves as the bar. They absolutely would have felt this. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. He left no doubt that, hey, your righteousness is not good enough. Couldn't be more clear about that. But what did this do for everybody else? Everybody else who's sitting here listening, up, up until this point, they're probably nodding along and they're doing okay. God's law isn't changing. Yeah. Amen. Good. Good stuff, Jesus. You should keep it and teach it. Not make light of it. Not teach people to disobey. Yeah, that's good. Makes sense. Those who do it, yeah, that's, you know, we're, we're tracking all the way through. Nods. Nods along. But now, you have to be more righteous. You have to have a greater righteousness. You have to do this better than the best people you've ever known do it. Now we're in different territory. I was with you, Jesus, until now. But now I've got a problem. Because I can't do this. These guys get to spend all their time understanding the law, practicing doing it. I've got a job, I've got a family, I've got kids, I'm stressed out. Like, I'm not going to do more than these guys do. It's not going to happen. And this is the bar to just get into the kingdom of heaven. This isn't like to like, move up or get a better house or something. This is just to get in. This is a little bit like I'm in jail and got a life sentence. And they come to me and they're like, hey, you know what? We want to let you out. We want to set you up with a place to live, give you enough money so you don't have to worry about anything. Like, I'm like yeah, let's do that. That sounds great. And they say, all you have to do to do that is, we're just going to say, we got the basketball courts out back. You just got to beat LeBron James in a little game of one-on-one. That's it. And then it's all yours. It's right there. That's a great promise, right? That sounds great for somebody serving a life sentence. 
It's also impossible. You don't have to watch me play basketball to know that this is true. You can give me a thousand shots at it. I'm not winning, ever. You can tie one arm behind LeBron's back. I'm still not winning. Make him play on his knees. That probably wouldn't change it, right? Like, there's no way I can do this. So, so think about the people here. It's the kingdom of heaven. Like, that's, that's the thing. That's what you want. And Jesus just put it completely out of reach with this one statement. That's what they hear. That's the way they feel this in the moment. That's what it means to them. And they are right to feel that way. That's absolutely how they should feel. In fact, the the surest sign that you're off in understanding God's law is thinking that you can keep it sufficiently. That is the clearest sign that you do not get it at all. So they are absolutely right to feel, at this moment, a certain despair. Like, I'm, this is beyond me. Jesus leaves no room for us to think that God's law is doable in a sufficient way. Right? He doesn't follow this up, right? He just dropped this hammer. He just devastated these people. They're like, there's no way I can do this. Now he doesn't come back in, good old Jesus, and say, oh, don't, hey, you guys can do it. I believe in you. Just try harder. Do the best you can. God helps those who help themselves, which is not in your Bible, ever. Contrary to everything that's in your Bible. Jesus says none of those things. Where does he go from here? Frankly, he piles on. He reinforces it. If you read the rest of this chapter, as we're going to kind of continue the next few weeks, the next thing he talks about, he talks about murder. He says, hey, the way you guys have understood murder, the way you've heard it taught to you, is that you shouldn't murder people. Good. He's like, well, you know what? The root sin of that murder is anger. Right? And if you are angry... If you have ill thoughts towards anyone, you've committed murder. You've violated God's moral law in that category. Right? And he moves on. He says, yeah, you've heard, hey, don't commit adultery. Yep, don't, don't break your marriage vows. Some of you guys probably think you've, you've done a pretty good job of that. He's like, well, I'm telling you, one lustful thought, you failed in that category. And he just continues. It's like, you've heard it said, treat people the way that they deserve, right? Like, treat them in kind. He's like, No. Treat them better. Don't avenge yourself. When they treat you badly, you treat them well. He says, you've heard that you should love your neighbor. Yeah, but you have to love your enemy too. And then he closes with what I referenced earlier. The last verse in this chapter is you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is not trying to take the weight off. He's not trying to relieve the despair yet when it comes to what we ourselves can do. He is laying it on in full. He wants to leave no doubt that you cannot do this. This chapter from verse 17 on, one of the main things he is doing, he is absolutely trying to shatter any hope you have in yourself and in what you can do. Shatter any illusions you have of self-righteousness. If you're going to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, it is not going to be from something inside of you. That last verse is the nail in the coffin, right? To be part of God's kingdom, you can't 
Being good isn't enough. Being better than most other people isn't enough. Being true to yourself isn't enough. Nothing is enough except perfection, to be as perfect as God himself. That means not a single error, not a single flaw in your motives, your thoughts, your words, your actions, anywhere. You strike out once, you can't bat a thousand anymore. It doesn't matter how many hits you get after that. Perfection is gone. So he doesn't try to make this more attainable. He tries to make it completely unattainable. That's what he uses God's law here, to expose our sinfulness, to expose our need, to crush us of the illusions we have of being righteous in and of ourselves. So, is this just the ultimate wet blanket sermon? Right? If we leave now, it is. Right? We have no good news. Right? This is all very, very bad news for us. Is Jesus' goal here just to crush us and, and make us feel not good enough? If it is, he's done a fine job. And it is, actually. That is his first goal. That's the first thing he's trying to do here. That has to happen first. But then there is something else here. There's something else here that we haven't talked about yet that changes everything. And it's back up in the first line. The first verse we read. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it. That word changes everything about this passage. Jesus says this is why he came. He came to do something with the law. Why he's here is to do something with the law, and it's not to abolish it. But there's a lot of other things he could have said. He could have said he came to uphold the law, to reaffirm it. Like, yeah, this is still the thing. He could have said he came to teach it. He could have said that. It would be true. He could have said he came to keep it. That would have been true, too. And all those would have been appropriate things for, for the king to do. But none of those things would have really changed the overall math of this passage, right? He could have kept it perfectly. We still wouldn't have been able to do it. He could have taught it perfectly. That wouldn't have fixed our problem. Our problem is not a lack of information. They knew the law. It was there. That wasn't the problem. It wasn't to reaffirm it. That wasn't the problem. All those would have been true, but they don't change anything. But he said fulfill. And that is something entirely different. To fulfill here, it means to bring something to completion. To bring it to its desired end. To satisfy it. My son Caden's really into Legos right now. And back when I was doing Legos, there was like a box of blocks. And that's what it was. And you just did stuff. Lego, the Lego universe is much different in the intervening time, right? There's just sets of everything. And so there's these sets, and there's these very particular things you should build. He's got, a, he's got an X-Wing set right now, right? And so to fulfill that Lego set would be to use all the pieces to build that thing exactly perfectly. At that point, there's nothing spare. The, the picture has been completed. Everything's done. There's nothing left to do. It is satisfied. That's the idea here of what this means with the law. It means to satisfy every demand that the law has. It means to completely do everything that it required 
so that it reaches its place of completion. That's what Jesus did with the law. He didn't abolish it. He didn't just sweep it under the rug and get rid of it. He came and did it all. He completed everything that it required. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes had it completely backwards. Jesus was not the friend of sinners because he permitted lawlessness. He was the friend of sinners. He went and hung out with them to deliver them from their lawlessness. It's completely the opposite. First Timothy says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And Paul follows it up by saying, I am the worst of them. He came to fulfill the law because he was the only one who could. When he's saying all this other stuff, he knows nobody can do it. He knows nobody can do it. He came to do it because nobody else could and somebody had to. If anyone is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, somebody has to do this. And nobody else could. So Jesus came and did it. He came to fulfill the law because his righteousness is the only righteousness that satisfies the law's demands. His righteousness is the only righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees that is perfect even as his heavenly Father is perfect. The Pharisees hated him because he told them that their righteousness wasn't enough. But sinners loved him because they knew they were not enough. And he came and he brought them what they lacked and what they knew they didn't have of themselves. And he came to give it to them as a gift of grace. Scripture teaches us that we are united to Christ through faith as God causes us to trust him for our righteousness rather than ourselves. Right, so that we have his righteousness as our own. And that so he takes our sin and guilt on himself. If any part of our right standing before God depends on us, we do not have it. If we did have it at some point, we would lose it. That the road to the kingdom is narrow, the gate is narrow, because it is as big as one person. Jesus is the only person who fits in. You get in in him or you don't get in. He is the way. You cannot be good enough. You cannot give enough. You can't be zealous enough, passionate enough, devout enough. All you can do is be joined to Christ. So he is the one way, but he is a sure and certain way. Right, this whole passage, with this one word, with this one reality of what Jesus actually came to do, this thing pivots from the most despair-bringing passage you can imagine to full of unbelievable hope and certainty and joy. Because when we are united to Christ, there's no more question about whether you enter the kingdom or not. Jesus has accomplished all that is required. He did fulfill the law. It is past tense now. There's no open questions anymore. He sat down at the right hand of the Father after he rose and ascended because he finished that work. Romans 10.4 says this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Hear that? That completely counteracts what the Pharisees were saying. There's, Jesus is the end of the law because he's getting rid of it and doesn't care. But Paul says, no, Jesus is the end of the law for what? For righteousness. He completed it. 
to everyone who believes. It is the end of the law, not because the law is abolished, but because it has been satisfied fully and completely by the perfect obedience and atoning death of Christ. That's why, it's unbelievable, the same Jesus who here in chapter 5 says, you must be perfect, even as God is perfect, can just a few chapters later say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You must be perfect does not sound like rest. That sounds exhausting and horrifying. But the same Jesus here says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find what? Rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. How can this be the same guy? How do those things go together? Because he fulfilled the law. When you are united to Christ, this entire passage transforms. It comes to mean something entirely different. You must be perfect, even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. goes from being this uncompletable, vitally necessary, but completely unattainable task that leads you to despair and hopelessness, and it becomes a guarantee. It becomes a certainty. It becomes a promise. It's no longer you must be perfect or else. It is now in Christ you are perfect. And you will be perfected. You will be like him. You will be like your father in every respect because of what Jesus has done. Those words that outside of Christ absolutely damn us are now the glorious promise that the Christ who has begun a good work in us will carry it on to completion. We are positionally perfect and one day we will be practically perfect. Every vestige of sin's power and holiness will be stripped away. There will be no bit of the flesh left. And what is true of us now in Christ will be made true of us in and of ourselves when we enter in to the fullness of his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your law. Thank you for not leaving us in the delusion that we are good. It's not hard if we want to, to get on the internet or look around on the news and find people that we can feel superior to, find people that we can use as a foil to make ourselves feel good about ourselves and to shake our head and look down our noses at everybody else and, and feel all right about ourselves. But that is a deadly place to be. And so we thank you for the way that your law confronts us and does not let us wiggle out from under it like that. Thank you for pinning us down and making us look into the mirror and see our sinfulness, can see, to see how far short we fall of the glory of God. Because it's only once we see that that we will run to the grace and mercy of Christ. We thank you so much for the provision that we have in him, for the righteousness we have in him that we could not conjure up on our own for the atoning death that we could not afford to die. That he died for us. We sang right before this that all I have is Christ and it is 
and totally and completely true, and he is absolutely enough. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.